All right. So let's go to Romans chapter 8. And we've titled this message today, Moaning and Groaning Part 2. And the reason we did that was because last week we looked um, at something in this passage. And just to kind of get us up to speed, there's a couple of things I want to bring us up to speed on. Number one is what Paul just shared with us last week is that children are automatically heirs. Now, in, in God's family, okay? And, and why is that significant? Because in the culture of the day, just being born into the family did not guarantee that you were going to receive an inheritance. In fact, the, the Greco-Roman culture had this, this whole process of adoption. And it was, you know, as, as, the, as the dad watched their, his sons and he determined which one was faithful. And there was kind of a probationary period. But the adoption was not to adopt somebody else's biological child into your family. The adoption in this day was to adopt uh, a biological child, and what that adoption signified was an inheritance. And so there was a, a time frame, a probationary period. And Paul said, in God's family, there's no probationary period. The moment you are born into the family of God, you are an inheritor. You're an heir. And that's based on your union with Jesus Christ. And so we saw that last week. Part of our inheritance is glorification. And you remember, we've talked about this a number of times, but when we talk about the word salvation, there's one salvation that God provides in the Bible, but it comes in three different aspects. And the one that we're most familiar with is salvation or deliverance from hell. And, and the thing that sends people to hell uh, is, is not as um, complex as you might think. The thing that sends people to hell is because uh, the Bible says that the penalty for sin is death. That means that nobody has ever lived a life perfect and not broken one of God's laws or made a mistake or willfully sinned. And the penalty for that is death. He also says that you have to have a righteousness equal to his to get to heaven. And so in the gospel, the fact that Jesus came and lived a perfect life, that Jesus went to the cross and died for your sins, there's the death penalty paid on your behalf as a substitute for you. And then the Bible also says that if you put your faith in Jesus alone, you believe that what he did was acceptable to God, that he died for your sins personally, paid the penalty that you deserve the Bible says you have eternal life. The Bible says your sins are forgiven. And on the righteousness issue, the Bible says that God has united you with Jesus Christ, that his righteousness is now the same righteousness that you own. Wow, that's, that's really good news. But that's only one aspect of our salvation. The other aspects are called sanctification and glorification. And we've been looking at sanctification in Romans chapter 6, 7, in the beginning of part of 8. And that is not salvation from hell, not salvation from sin's penalty, but it's salvation from sin's power in your daily life. And God has provided the means for you to experience salvation from sin's power in your daily life. And then finally, that future tense aspect of our one salvation glorification, where God will actually save you or deliver you from the very presence of sin. And we await that day when the Bible says that we'll receive our glorified bodies. And that's the section of Romans that we're in is really looking at this glorification section. And so last week we looked at the first entity that's moaning and groaning. What, are, what is this entity moaning and groaning about? Well, it's looking forward to the day that the sons of God, those of you who have put your faith in Jesus Christ will be glorified. 
the day that you will receive your new glorified body, the day that you will be delivered from the very presence of sin, that one entity was creation. Creation, the, the trees, the waterfalls, the mountain, everything you see on this earth that God created all the way back in Genesis 1 and 2, they have been, creation's been subjected to futility, to vanity, and creation itself is looking forward to the day that you will be revealed as a son of God. See, creation's looking forward to your day. And so many times in our culture, we get it backwards and we begin to worship creation. And creation's actually looking forward to the day that you'll be revealed for who you are in Jesus Christ. And so that was the first entity. We see that in verse 22 as we kind of ramp up into our study this morning. But verse 22 says this, for we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. But we see another entity groaning in verse 23. It says this, not only that, but we also who have the first fruits of the spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. And this verse is, is kind of loaded. So we're going to just kind of work our way through phrase by phrase. But this not only that is referring to this concept that not only is creation moaning and groaning with birth pangs, but you are. As a believer, you within your body are looking forward, eagerly expecting this day of your glorification. He says this, even we ourselves groan within ourselves. This word means to groan or to sigh. It, it's uh, what happens when one is squeezed or pressed by circumstances. In fact, we've been looking in this passage about how uh, Paul always puts our glorification try to, like, right in the front of our mind's eye. Because Why? Because we're dealing with present awful circumstances called trials and, and sufferings. And, and he wants us focused on that day, occupied with our future glorification, that final phase of our salvation, because it can actually impact how we live here as we deal with trials. You know, God's answer to trials many times is not remove the trials, but to actually walk through them with you. That's not a popular message, right? We, we want to hear a message that, you know, God's a genie in a bottle. And anytime you go through something bad, you just rub him a certain way and boom, they're gone. These issues are gone. These trials are gone. These irritants are gone. The way that I feel in the morning when I wake up is, is gone. We look forward to that day. That is going to happen one day in our glorification. That's why we're looking forward to it. That's why we're eagerly anticipating that day because in heaven, there's no tears, there's no sorrows, there's no sickness, there's no trials. It's just enjoyment with the Lord on, on, on a place off Easy Street called heaven. It's <laughs> actually enjoying the presence of our Lord. You know, what's interesting about this, this groaning here is it's very, it's similar to creation's groaning. It's a continual and ongoing groaning. And, and I do have to point this out because... Um, Otherwise, we, we might excuse a lot of things. But notice it's not an external groaning. We're, we're not trying to give you a justification to complain as you walk through this life and be, be a grumbler and, and a complainer and just, you know, uh, make it all about yourself. But notice that this groaning, according to the text in verse 23, that we groan where? Within ourselves. This is an internal groaning. I remember uh, an older gentleman married to his wife complaining about 
the way aging was treating his body and he was groaning and moaning about having to go up the stairs and go over here and get this and go out here and do these chores in the yard. And his wife said, man, you sure are complaining about a lot. And he told her, well, I'm just trying to be biblical, Romans 8, 23. <laughs> and that's not what we're talking about here. We're not talking about complaining. We're not talking about moaning and groaning, but this definitely is reflected in our bodies, the creaks and the pains and and the, and the issues that we feel in these mortal bodies. And, um, but we're talking about this external, or not an external groaning, but an internal groaning, something that happens within ourselves. Now, notice this, because he, he uses this next phrase, um, we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit. And, you know, I think it's a good question to ask who's the we here? Who's he talking about? Let's kind of get this clarified. But it's those of us who have the first fruits of the Spirit. In other words, if you remember back in the beginning part of Romans 8, he says, if you're a child of God, you have his Spirit. Um, We own the Spirit of God. He indwells us, if you will. Each believer has the indwelling Spirit of God. And so he's talking about the believer, and he talks in terms of first fruits. And, you know, that's not a real familiar concept to us that don't live in an agricultural uh, society. And so what the first fruits were is, is as, a, as a farmer would, uh, especially an Israelite, would present or, or plant their, their harvest and they would reap that harvest. Then they would present the very first um, fruits or the first produce that came out of the ground. They would present that to the Lord as an offering. Now, those of you who have ever planted a garden, you know how difficult that is, right? Because you you're out there watering this garden, tending it. You get no benefit from it until that one day you walk out there and you're like, ah, my first ripe tomato of the season. And what's the first thing you want to do? You want to take that off and you want to go make something with it, right? Throw it in a salad, make, make some spaghetti sauce, something. You want to use it right away. And see, the Israelites would take that, that, that first produce that they would get and instead of using it, which they had labored for, they would actually give it away to the Lord. And the mindset behind that was it acknowledged that all of the harvest was his anyways, and it expressed faith that the rest of the harvest was still going to follow. See, it was, it was an act of faith to say, here you go, Lord, because I know you're so good to me. You're going to bring more. There's more to come. And see, in this whole area of glorification, he, he, he talks about the Spirit as being the first fruits. You know, this indwelling Spirit guaranteeing what? There's more to come, guys. And that's called glorification. That's called a redeemed body, as we'll see here as we study further. And so God's gift of the Holy Spirit is his pledge that he will complete the process of salvation. If you have any doubt that God's going to complete what he started, just look at the first fruits that he's given you the Spirit of God, the indwelling Spirit of God. And that's to guarantee and to encourage you that you will one day be glorified again. The first fruits always guaranteed more to come. The Spirit of God is referred to as the earnest deposit of our inheritance in Ephesians 1.14. You can kind of write that down as a cross-reference. Also write down 2 Corinthians 5, verses 1 through 5. It covers very similar ground as what we're covering here. And it also talks about the Spirit of God being that earnest deposit of more to come. More to come in this case is our glorification. God is, again, trying to convince us and and allow us to rest in the fact that he's going to complete this great salvation that he initiated. 
And so we see here this adoption. Uh, let's go back and read verse 23 because, again, we're, big, we're picking off big chunks here. But he says, not only that, but we also who have the first roots of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves. Why? Well, we're eagerly waiting for the adoption, which is identified here as the redemption of our body. And so we see part of our inheritance, part of this, uh, what we gain in being adopted as a son of God, the moment we put our faith in Christ, is we're going to have a new body. Now, those of you, as we live longer on this earth, that hallelujah about a new body gets a little bit louder, right? You know, some, I, I remember, I remember the days of being 18 and not having to stretch to play basketball. Stretch? Why would I, why would I waste 15 minutes? I could be shooting, I could be running, I could be doing things. It wasn't until I hit about 25 that I started to realize, wow, stretching is going to elongate my, my basketball career. In fact, I remember one time I didn't stretch well enough and pulled a hamstring that pulled me out. And hamstrings tend to get pulled a little bit older you get, don't they? Other things tend to get pulled and yanked even older as you get. And so we, we see that one day the excitement is, is that this adoption that we were predestined to, according to Ephesians 1, not predestined to salvation, remember, predestined to glorification. That's what God's talking about when we talk about adoption. But that day is going to include the redemption of our body, and that's something that we eagerly wait for. In fact, this eager... Uh, word here is, is an intensive. It's eager looking. It's the same way that Paul described creation. You know, creation was described in two ways, craning its neck, looking forward to the day that you would be glorified or be revealed as a son of God, but also this eager anticipation, this eager waiting, looking forward to, kind of like last week I used the picture of the, that dog, that really loyal dog sitting at the window, just looking out the window, waiting for the owners to come home, this eager looking forward, this expectant looking. And so we are to be doing that as a believer in Jesus Christ. And so the same thing that creation's groaning for and eagerly looking forward is the same thing that we're groaning and looking forward to, which is our um, glorification. Now, one of the things that we're going to see is, is in this adoption, and we actually shed our mortal bodies. We're going to shed our mortal bodies for the exchange of immortal bodies. And this truth is brought out in a couple of different passages. But 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 54 is a, is a great passage that kind of brings out this concept. Um, but it, what, what's interesting is he keeps with this adoption imagery, even here as we're talking about getting this new body. And, he, and, and you'll see that he, he goes back in verse 24, this, this eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. And it provides beautiful imagery of the adoption ceremony of, of Roman families, where a young man would actually shed at this ceremony, shed his youthful toga, and he would put on his adult toga. Now, apparently, I mean, I've never been to a toga party. I've just seen them on TV or read about them. They don't sound like uh, really great places, especially on college campuses. But um, apparently in this day, the, the toga was, a, was a, uh, you know, a, a clothing that they would wear. But people in this day could tell if, if a young man was wearing a, a childhood toga or if he was wearing an adoption toga. They were, they were different and they could tell the difference. And so we've got a kind of an image here of a Roman adoption ceremony, obviously not a picture, but <laughs> an image of what it may have looked like. And, and so there was two different types of toga and one toga would be 
taken off and taken away. That was the childhood toga, and that was called a toga pretexta. Um, I don't expect you to remember this. I had to write it down myself. That was removed, but they were given a toga virilis. They were given an adulthood toga that represented they were adopted as sons. And so you see that imagery in our unredeemed body being removed or taken from us and our redeemed body, our glorified body being given to us as adopted sons. That's part of our inheritance. And so Paul is using some of this uh, imagery here, I believe. And so on to verse 24, he says this, and, and, and again, he uses this word for um, to further explain something. Verse 24 says this, for we uh, were once, uh, for we were saved in this hope, but hope that is not is seen as not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? And so this four um, just further explains verse 23. And it and, and this eagerly waiting aspect of our future glorification. In other words, why can we eagerly wait? Why, why can we actually eagerly look forward to the day of our glorification? Well, he makes it pretty simple in verse 23. Uh, or verse 24, for we were saved in this hope. We were saved. Uh, this, this word here is, is in the Greek, it's in an aorist tense. It, it reflects a point in time event. Um, and I believe it speaks of both our justification and our future glorification. And we'll, as we get into next week, we get into verses 29 and 30, we're gonna see that our glorification is just as much of a done deal as our justification. In God's estimation, because what did Paul say? If you're a child, verse 17, then you're an heir. If a child, then an heir. If a child, full inheritance, adoption, glorification. So those two things go together. And I believe he's speaking of both here, both our justification and glorification. Now, why is this important? Because it's important because the, it's promised to us the moment that we believe. Um, I was, those of you know that I'm, I'm working on a degree right now and I'm writing a, a big paper and um, that paper is almost done to the, to the praise of the glory of his grace. And, um, but it's on gospel clarity. And I, I had a, a friend who's a, who's a pastor who offered to, to proofread it for me and to go through it. And it really created some nice conversations between him and I. But I'm only sharing that story because um, one night he had a men's Bible study and he decided to bring up the topic of my paper, which was gospel clarity, which basically states you can know 100% sure that you're going to heaven. And he shared that with a men's Bible study that night. And to his shock and amazement, over 80% of the group there that evening said that if you think you're 100% sure that you're going to heaven, you are arrogant and proud. And you should not think that way. Now, immediately, that exposes the way that they were thinking. And there may be even somebody here today that says, wait a minute, you can't know 100% sure. And it just exposes the way you're thinking, because if you think that you have anything to do with your salvation, your behavior, your performance, your good works, your consistency, then I agree with you. You have no chance. You shouldn't even be 80% chance, uh, sure, because that would be arrogant. And I can tell you, as I stand here today, that I'm 100% sure that I'm going to heaven and it has nothing to do with me. In fact, it's less arrogant than somebody who thinks they're working to go to heaven who's only 80% chance, sure. Because I'm trusting in the work of another. 
I'm trusting in the work that somebody else did for me. And you know what? If his work proves not to be good enough, well, I didn't have a chance anyway. And I realized that. So Jesus Christ is not my crutch. He's my stretcher, right? I'm not just leaning on him a little bit, kind of resting a little bit, weight on myself. I'm totally passed out on the stretcher of Jesus Christ. And if he's not good enough, I don't have a chance anyways. And so what we see here is this, this hope, this confident expectation, hope, that's def- what it's defined biblically, is confident future expectation. It's not how we use it, like, ah, I hope so, I wish so. Like many people say, well, you going to heaven? Ah, I hope so. You know, I, I'm going to church or I'm reading my Bible. So I, yeah, I kind of hope so. I'm doing good. I'm not doing these things anymore. That's not biblical hope. Biblical hope is confident expectation. Why can we be confident in our future glorification? Because of Jesus. (laughs) Because of who Jesus is and what he did. He died for our sins. He rose again. He satisfied the righteous demands of God. And so we can actually look forward in confident expectation. Now, when we look at hope, we've got to understand that by definition, hope that is seen can't be hope. (laughs) By definition, if it's something future that we confidently expect, if it's something that we see, it's not hope, it's reality. Does that make sense? I mean, that, just as a, as a definition thing, if we see something, it, it can't be considered hope. Now, we could, we could um, look at our, our, our daily lives and see gr- spiritual growth, but that's, that's reality. That wouldn't be considered hope. Hope is looking forward to the day that our bodies are glorified, that we're completely delivered from the presence of sin. That's what we're talking about, hope. But what in this passage is Paul contrasting for us? We gotta keep this in mind, otherwise these verses kinda get confusing. Like, well, what's he saying here? What's What's he trying to get to? What's he contrasting? He's contrasting our future hope with our present sufferings right? And he even started that way back when he says, um, in verse 18, he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory, which shall be future tense revealed in us. That's what he's contrasting here. And so he asked this question as he's coming out of this verse, why does one hope for what he sees? And remember, again, Paul's weaving in and out of future glorification and our present suffering. And I think this is a reference. Why, why do you hope for what you see? I think this is a reference to present circumstances. Why, why is your hope, in other words, why is your hope on getting out of present bad circumstances? Why is your hope in being delivered from present suffering in this life? When, when one day you'll be completely delivered from sin's presence, Why is your focus, why is your hope right now in this present world to get rid of everything? And and so I think this is a a reminder that our true hope lies only in our glorification, our future glorification, not in the betterment of our present circumstances. Now, I think he's going to go on in verse 26 and say, now you've got help in your present circumstances. And let me tell you the resource you've got for that. But your hope is not based on your life cleaning up and getting easy. You know, I, I think if I wrote my perfect life, if, if God gave me the pen and he said, John, I'm going to give you veto power on any trial, suffering, hardship in your life, and, and I'm going to present it to you and you can veto it if you don't want it. You know how many things I would sign off on? Zero. I would, I would veto everything. <laughs> 
I wouldn't even want to stub my toe coming out of the shower because that hurts. I wouldn't even want to lose a fingernail because that hurts. I wouldn't want to be stuck at the post office with my car not starting because that's a pain. I want to be somewhere. I want my car to work every time I, I shift it into gear. And every time I take my car to the mechanic, I want him to say, oh, it was nothing. You just owe me, you know, two bucks. I don't want him dropping me with a $1,200 bill. I would never sign off on that. I would veto that every time. And yet, that's many times how we tried and desire to live our Christian life. Our hope, if you will, is on the betterment of our present circumstances. And Paul's saying, no, 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 guys. <laughs> Get your focus off of that. You've got something much better in the future. God never promised to deliver you from all of your present circumstances, but he doesn't pro- provide a help in present circumstances. Let's keep studying as we go. Verse 25 But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. You see, if our occupation or focus is on our glorification, do you know that we're better equipped to deal with life's pressures and trials and sufferings? You know, what does Paul say in in Colossians 3? He says, if you then be risen with Christ, set your things on, set your mind on things above, right? There's this heavenly focus. There's this spiritual focus. And guess what happens when we begin to think heavenly and, and to be spiritual in our focus and begin to view life through a divine perspective? We actually have the ability to deal with all the junk and can I say crap <laughs> that life throws at us? Life throws, you know, stink bombs at us constantly. And yet the answer is not in hoping for an easier life, but to get our mind past all of that stuff and to occupy ourselves with God's future plan for us. And in that instance, when we become divinely um, focused, if you will, we're better able to deal with life's circumstances. In fact, he's going to use a word here, verse 25, we read it, it's, it's called perseverance, We'll look at that a little bit more closely. But the things we do not see presently is our future glorification and redeemed and glorified bodies. We just don't see that. You know, no one walks around with a halo, uh, a glow. I mean, even if you're pregnant, I know there's a glow, but that's not what we're talking about here, right? Um, And I know Prince Charming always has a glow uh, until the the lights come on. Uh, (laughs) You get to see him a little bit more, but we're not talking about that. And so in contrast, uh, to hoping that our present sufferings would go away as our hope, right? That's, that's typically our hope is that our present sufferings will go away. Paul's encouraging our hope to remain in our future glorification. And he's saying, if we do that, um, we will have to persevere. That's, that's the word used here. It means to bear up under with the circumstances of this life in order or uh, kind of on the way, if you will, to, our, to the fulfillment of our hope. And so we have this Greek word, um, that's used for perseverance. It's the Greek word hupamone, and it just means to bear up under. <clears throat> Our theology does not include this word typically. <laughs> we, we don't naturally think of bear up under. We think of get out from under. That's, that's typically the word that we think of uh, in the way that we want to deal with 
difficult circumstances or trials. And so what this word refers to is really that quality of character which does not allow someone to surrender to circumstances or succumb under trial. And are we going to face trials in this life? Yeah, rest assured we're going to face trials. But with a future focus and a divinely um, uh, divine focus, we're better able to now bear up under these things that are naturally going to come our way. And that's what God is doing with trials. And so this eager looking forward to is not a morbid looking forward to our death. I've heard a lot of people, yeah, I'm looking forward to glorification. I just can't wait to die and get out of this. It's It's not a morbid focus on our death. It's an excited looking forward to, to what's coming. It's not what you're going to shed, it's what you're going to gain. And so many times our focus on glorification or focus on that day that we're with the Lord is shedding, uh, shedding something. Paul's focus here is there's this eager expectation of what's going to be. Something that you can't even probably or I could even put into perspective how wonderful it's going to be to have a glorified body, to be in the presence of the Lord, to be completely delivered from sin's presence. Those are the things that we're looking forward to, that we're eagerly expecting. And so one of the things that helps us in this life deal with present sufferings is hope. Where's your focus? What are you occupied with, right? Back in Romans 8, uh, Romans 8 5, it, it talked to be, what do you set your mind on? Are you setting your mind on the things of the flesh? Are you setting your mind on the things of the spirit? The spirit of God wants to draw your focus past this present experience onto future glorification because that will impact the way that you're able to deal with and hold up under life's trials. But guess what? We have additional aid. Verse 26. You see that word, likewise. And so likewise... The Spirit also helps in our weaknesses, for we do not know what we should pray pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And so we see this uh, word likewise, meaning uh, the same or like manner. And so what's he talking about? Same or like manner is what? Well, I believe hope, as we just discussed, helps us in our weaknesses and suffering. But guess what? so too does the indwelling Spirit of God. See, you've got a resource as a believer in the indwelling Spirit of God to help you through life's trials and and weaknesses and infirmities. And so we're about to kind of get some insight into what the Spirit of God does for us. Um, But before we do, let's look at this word help. Because it means to, and I love this, it means to come together and assist or support someone with help or aid. And guess what? It represents ongoing and continual action. In other words, this is something the Spirit of God is always doing in your life, what we're about to read about. This should provide you great comfort because has anyone ever gone through something and said, where are you, God? Don't you, do you care about me, God? Why would you allow this to happen, God? The Word of God says he knows what you're going through. The Spirit of God indwelling you has an ongoing and continual ministry to help you in your weaknesses. Ever felt weak? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you've got the indwelling Spirit of God there. And one of his primary purposes in this present age is to assist you. 
is to provide the help that you need. And we're going to see how he does this. But I just want you to understand that the Spirit of God is not sleeping when something bad happens to you. He's not taking the day off when something goes wrong in your life or you're irritated about something. Uh, How many times are we impatient looking for that answer because we got to have this answer before we can go on to steps two, three, and four? It's not that the Spirit of God is sitting there going, yeah, let's just watch how he or she just has to wait for that answer. Let me see how much they struggle. That's not what's going on at all. In fact, the Word of God says something much different. The Spirit of God is, is very interested and engaged in what's going on in your life and is continually helping you in this manner. And so we'll look at what manner that is. The Spirit supports us and assists us, especially we see as it relates to our weaknesses, our our frailties, our feebleness, the, the way that we handle trials. And so in context, it does seem to be especially true in the area of life's trials and sufferings, that the Spirit of God is there to help and assist, especially during these times where we feel weak. And go back to verse 26, because he says, likewise, the Spirit also helps us in our weaknesses. Notice that word there again, for. Um, Why does the Spirit of God help us in our weakness? How does the Spirit of God help us in our weakness? Well, that for is going to be the transition to how and why and, and what he's all about here in terms of helping us in our weaknesses. And the first thing we realize is this. It's, it's real simple. It says in the text, we don't even know how we should pray during these times. And, and I want uh, you to notice something that it's, it's not necessarily that we don't pray. That might be true of some of us. Maybe we, we don't pray and we just go into gear and try to figure out all the solutions to our problems. And we, we just trust in our intellect. We trust in our ability to solve problems. We trust in experiences. We trust in what we've done before. Um, and, and so some of us may not pray, but in this case, it's not that we don't pray necessarily, but it's, we don't pray in accordance with the will of God as it relates to trials. Um, we already said this, but most, and I'm giving us a lot of credit on the word most, it's probably all, well, let's just say most of our prayers concerning trials are simple. Get them out of here, God, and get them out of here quickly. That's our prayer. And you know, we're like a one-string banjo. Boing. Just get them out of here, God. And we've got one note. We've got one chord. We play it often and hard and consistently. That's our prayer, typically when we're going through trials. Now, some of you uh, have probably grown spiritually over the years, and, and maybe you got a couple strings on your banjo. Uh, and that's good. That's progress. But, but for most of us, We've got a one-string banjo as it relates to our prayers, as it, as it comes to trials and suffering. And it's get them out of here. Get them out of here quickly. What's taking you so long? That's our, those are, that's our prayer request when it comes to trial. Now, here's the thing. We've got to understand. This is why the text clearly says we do not know. Not if you don't know or when you don't know, implying that it's sometimes you do know the right way. He doesn't assume that at all. He assumes that you don't know how to pray. He is, you, me too, I'm not trying to point finger. He assumes that we don't know how to pray. And not only that, the, the, the verb tense that he uses here is a perfect tense, which means that he assumes you don't know how to pray and you remain in the state of not knowing how to pray as it relates to trials. And then he says, 
He uses this phrase, as we ought. That's convicting. Because what's he now saying? We don't know how to pray, but we should. <laughs> Based on what? How should we know how to pray? Well, have you ever heard teaching from the Word of God on trials and suffering? Do you, have you ever heard that God uses those things for your benefit to grow you spiritually so that you relate to him on a more consistent, dependent basis in your daily life? And yet, what's the one string that we pray when trials and suffering come? Get them out of here. And God may be using them for your good. He, he is oftentimes using these things for your good. In fact, what's verse 28 going to tell us when we get there? God works all things together for our good. And so you see where all this fits in. And so we see that the Spirit's ministry here is that he's going to take care of this. We don't know what to pray, but the Spirit of God does know what to pray. Aren't you encouraged that the Spirit of God is like the great defensive back? He's intercepting all those prayer requests and then floating up the right ones up to, the Lord, up to God the Father for you? Interceding internally exactly what you need as a child of God. Exactly according to the will of God, as we'll find in verse 27. <clears throat> so this is how the Spirit helps. He makes intercession for us, the text tells us, with groanings. Who's the third entity groaning? Well, we saw creation was groaning. We saw that we were groaning. And now we see that the Spirit of God is groaning within us. And you know what? This is how the Spirit helps. This is how the Spirit comes alongside of us during trials. He prays for us according to the will of God. He knows exactly what God wants to accomplish in each and every trial, negative circumstance, and suffering that you're going through in life. The Spirit of God indwelling you knows exactly what they're trying to get out of it in your life. The Spirit of God knows exactly how God wants to use the trials, and he's offering these intercessory prayers on our behalf. Um, you know, does, you're, going, you're probably going through trials right now. Okay. Everyone breathing in here? Okay, you're probably going through trials, some kind of suffering right now. Do you know, without a shadow of a doubt this morning, if God wants to deliver you out of that or to deliver you through that? In other words, walk through it with you. Do you, do you know the answer to that question? Are you 100% sure that you know the answer to that question? Well, if we're being honest with ourselves, no, we don't. We don't know that, but guess who does? The Spirit of God knows. And you can rest assured this morning that you may be confused with what's going on in your life. You may not understand why you're having to go through the pain that you're going through, but there is a, a, uh, a person that's indwelling you that does know and that's praying for your good, praying for God's will in your life. He wants to use it for maximum benefit in your life. Can we rest in that truth? Or do we need the trial removed to actually relax? Hopefully, Hopefully, God will lift our mind upward and we can begin to rest in this truth and not so much need trials removed in order to go on in our relationship with the Lord. We see that the, uh, we notice a couple of things here um, as we look at this uh, a little bit further, but we see that the Spirit is going to make intercession continually because we do not know what we should pray for. You know, uh, it reminds me, somebody just kind of mentioned this as an illustration. It was really a good illustration. But, you know, imagine a, a parent, uh, being a parent, and you've got a child that has a speech problem. 
speech impediments, really difficult for them to, to talk and to communicate um, concepts. And just to imagine as that youngster struggles, the, the feeling um, of the parent as they, as they use their own voice to formulate what the, tri- the child's trying to say. Just doesn't like to watch that child struggle. They, they just can't get their words out. And so the parent many times jumps in to help them communicate on their behalf just so as they wouldn't struggle. And so this to me provides a great picture of how the Holy Spirit takes our prayers, readjusts them, and then verbalizes them to the Father on our behalf, bringing them in line with the Father's ultimate goal for us. But we want to notice that this is a continual ministry of the Holy Spirit. Again, he's not taking a day off. He's not resting. He's not absent. He's doing this right now as you sit here in this building. He's doing that in you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. The other thing we want to notice is that he, uh, notice the text says that he makes intercession for us. He does not make intercession through us. Now, you may say, well, what's, what are you making a big deal about that for? Well, the big deal is this is not an externally verbalized prayer, okay? In fact, he goes on to say that he groans, the Spirit groans, and he groans with us in creation, but his groanings are, according to this passage, not uttered. In other words, it's not oddy, you don't hear it. It's not something that's coming out of you. It's something that he's doing in you and for you, but it's not audible in the sense, so it's not expressed in words or sounds. Now, why do I... Why do I bring this up? Well, because many people will use this verse to teach that this, was a, that this is uh, the giving of a private prayer language or the ability to speak in tongues when you're praying in your closet at home. And I'm just pointing out just from simple observation that that's not what this can't be what this is teaching because it's he's praying for us and he's doing it in groanings which cannot be uttered. Not, he's not doing it through us with groanings that are uttered in some spiritual ecstatic speech. And so be careful of that. That's a, that's a misnomer uh, that's floating around in Christian circles that there's some kind of spiritual level you can attain where you begin to pray in tongues personally. And all I'm saying is this verse doesn't teach that. I don't believe it teaches it anywhere, but we're in Romans, so we're dealing with this verse. This verse clearly doesn't teach that. This is something that the Spirit of God is doing in you, for you, not through you. And so what it is, ultimately, it's an encouragement. It's, it's designed to be an encouragement to you that through the trials and sufferings of this life, the indwelling Spirit of God is praying for you according to the will of God. You know, there are so many times in our life that we pray for things that are not best for us. If you have lived any amount of time on this earth and remember some of the prayer requests that you've uttered or in your thinking and now you look back and you say, wow, I'm glad God didn't answer that prayer. Um, There's an old uh, country song by a guy named Garth Brooks and he said, some of God's greatest gifts are unanswered prayers. And the whole storyline of that is he, he wanted to marry this one girl and he was desperate for her and she broke up with him and his life was over. But then God, you know the story, right? It, it, it always ends well. Um, well, sometimes in country songs, it ends well. Sometimes you lose your dog and your truck and all that stuff. But this one ended well. The, the, the woman of his dreams then was inserted into his life. And he said, oh, Lord, thank you for not answering my prayer to marry this girl when you had this girl in mind for me. 
You know, and we've got scriptural example. You know, the Apostle Paul, in fact, let's, uh, if you'd like, or you, you might be familiar with this, I can read this to you, but 2 Corinthians 12, uh, 7 through 9, we, we see another example where, where God did not answer a prayer for somebody going through trials, and that was the Apostle Paul. In verse 7 of 2 Corinthians 12, he says this, lest I should be exalted above measure, By the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it might depart from me. Again, what is our typical prayer in trials? Depart from me. Take it away. Paul was normal just like us. But in verse 9, the Lord says to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And then notice Paul's response, therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. You see, there was a benefit to not getting his answered prayer. But you know, the spirit of God was indwelling Paul and at the same time Paul was praying, depart, depart from me, take it away from me. The spirit of God was saying, no, use it to make him weak so he'll depend upon you. Use it to make him weak so that he will actually accomplish great things for your name because he can't do it in his own strength anymore. He's gonna have to rely upon you. Don't listen to Paul. God, listen to my prayers. I'm in line with your will. And this is what the spirit of God was doing in the meantime in Paul's life. We've got another story, not a a scriptural example, but just to kind of give you another illustration of how this works. You know, those of you have heard of Augustine, um, Augustine or Augustine, okay? And I know someone will correct me afterwards on how it's pronounced. I'm just gonna say August, Augustine. So I can't even say it, I, I keep mixing up. I'm just gonna say Augustine to kind of stick, stick consistent. But, but many of you know or have heard the name of, of Augustine, one of, one of known as a church father and a prolific uh, writer and theologian. But uh, what many people don't know about his background is that he was a very wicked young man, very evil. Uh, womanizer into all sorts of things that you could get into at at that age. He was all over the place, a total disgrace to his family. Um, And yet his mother was a believer. And so his mother is at home praying for him. She's obviously got a heavy burden for her son because he's just off doing things that she knows is gonna destroy his life. And so she's praying for him. And she learns that uh, from her son, Augustine, that he's planning on moving to Italy and, and in the mom's thinking at that time, Italy was the worst place for someone who was into sin. That was going to just really explode it. He was going to do something he couldn't get out of. He was going to get into worse and deeper sin. And you know what her prayer was? God, don't let my son go to Italy. Just don't let him go. That's going to be the worst thing for him. If he goes to Italy, I'll, he'll never have a chance to get saved. He'll never come back. He's just going to get further and further and deeper into sin. And you know what? God did not answer her prayer. And Augustine went to Italy. And guess what God had in place in Italy for Augustine? He had somebody there that shared the gospel with him and he got saved in Italy. And and you see, God didn't answer her prayer, but he gave her her heart's true request. What was her true request? Lord, save my son. Save my son. And if, and if God were to have that conversation with her, well, how do you want me to save him? She would say, any means possible. I don't care. Just save him. I want him saved. And you know what that involved? A trip to Italy. A trip to a, a known place with lots of carnal vices and options available. And yet God did not answer her prayer, but gave her 
the desires of her heart. And so you see where this can be an encouragement during trials and suffering, that the Spirit of God knows how to pray. And as we learn in verse 27, the Spirit of God and, and God the Father are on the exact same page as it relates to trials in your life. Verse 27 says, Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. See, the Spirit of God is never going <laughs> to lead you outside of the will of God, nor is he ever going to pray for something that's outside of the will of God. That's an encouragement because how many times in our lives do we pray for things outside of the will of God? I mean, it starts young, right? Lord, I want a Lamborghini when I grow up. I want $4 million in the bank, you know, and all these things that we pray outside of the, the will of God. We think that's where true happiness uh, and success is. But we're going to see that God the Father from this verse and God the Spirit are in complete unity as to what God wants to accomplish in the believer's life via trials and suffering. And, and I like the way that Paul pictures him. I don't know if you noticed it in verse 27, but he's, God is pictured as searching our hearts. You know, that's kind of a, an anthropomorphism because God knows what's going on in our hearts, right? But he's pictured here as searching our hearts. Now, that's, a, that's an interesting way to say that. And, and, and why do we think he said it this way? Well, I think he, the, the picture is that he's searching what the mind of the Spirit of God is indwelling this believer at this particular time for this particular saint, looking into that situation and seeing, uh, bringing themselves into unity. And I think it's an anthropomorphism because obviously I, don't, I think the Spirit of God and the God of the Father are complete unity. It's not like he's got to have a meeting with the Spirit and so, say, yeah, what do you think about this one? Okay, yeah, I can see what you're saying, but what about, it's not that. That's not what we're talking about. It's an anthropomorphism, but it's, it's showing the great intensity and the great interest that God the Father has in your spiritual development through trials and suffering. And it also shows how connected he and the Spirit of God are in every situation involving you. And so when the Spirit of God prays, groans with these, these, this groaning that cannot be uttered and intercedes for you, it is always and continually according to God's will for your life. And that hopefully should be a great encouragement for you. So next week, um, based on God's great care for us, as we've looked at today, and based on uh, the resources provided to us via his Holy Spirit, um, he's going to give us a proper perspective on the happenings of life. And, and, and for many of you, Romans 8.28 is one of your favorite verses in the Bible. Um, and for many of you, it may have been a verse that's irritated you at times when people have quoted it to you when you're going through trials. But let's just, next week, we'll take a biblical uh, look at that. And uh, hopefully it's a great encouragement to you. Let's close with a word of prayer. Lord, I do thank you um, for your word. And uh, Lord, I just, uh, my, my heart's desire for all of us is to, is to really just begin uh, on a daily moment by moment basis to have um, a heavenly perspective uh, on trials and suffering, a, a heavenly occupation with our future glorification. Uh, that we would remember uh, and be encouraged by the Spirit's uh, continual ministry uh, in us uh, as he intercedes for us according to your will. Uh, and so, Lord, we just pray that those things would be very meaningful to us as we walk and live our life uh, this week. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.